0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, we hope you enjoyed last week's program, our, our hour-long chat with James Eugenio, something like his 14th appearance on this program. Jim does have the distinction of being, I, I believe, the only person, well, there's one other exception, but he was, the, at first, the only person we ever had on this show who did the interview that we aired. This came about because we were headed to, uh, to talk with former FBI agent and author William Turner at his home in Marin County, and it turned out Jim had beat us to the punch and was going to be interviewing Jim as well, so we figured, what the hell. That interview, uh, which we consider to be a good one, is still available on our archives at radioparallax.com. Anyway, today's program promises to be as loosely wrapped as any we've done, which, which says quite a bit. Now, one thing that I was impressed with uh, in the last week or so, and, and this is, I know, going to be hard to, to believe to most the listenership, was a poem that I encountered. The poem in question by Ralph Waldo Emerson is titled Success, and I heard it at a, a celebration of an old family friend in the Bay Area, a man named Richard Brunelli, of my parents' generation, and uh, a man who, along with his wife and several other high school cohorts, met together on a regular basis for many decades. And um, although rather sadly, uh, Mr. Brunelli is the only survivor among the, uh, the group of eight at this point, it was a very cool thing to be there for his 95th birthday celebration. It was at that point that his son Jim decided to read from this poem, which I'm going to now do in its entirety. Yes, we do know that if Dr. Andy Jones is listening at the moment, he's probably just fallen off his chair, because as we freely admit, poetry is not our strong suit. But since we are there, we probably should plug Dr. Andy's fine program, Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour, which has been heard on KDVS uh, Wednesday afternoons for, I don't know, a quarter century at this point. Anyway, Dr. Ralph Waldo Emerson, success. To laugh often and to love much, to win the respect of intelligent persons and the affection of children, to learn the appreciation of honest citizens and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to find the beauty in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to have played and laughed with enthusiasm and sung with exultation, To know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to have succeeded. At the conclusion, Jim pointed to his father and said, that's my dad. To which I say, fair enough. He was and is a good man. And uh, in hearing at this particular uh, memorial, birthday party celebration, about some of the work that he has done over the years, volunteer work to help others. I realize, you know, it's, it's time for me to step up my game. Now, we should note that Mr. Merlin and I have both been looking for good news items with, um, with renewed fervor of late, being there's so much bad news floating around us. But by gosh, there, there is some good news to be had out there, such as the fact that as was reported last month by the Associated Press, coral reefs off Texas are thriving. And I did not realize there were a lot of coral reefs down the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of Texas, but apparently there are, and apparently they're doing pretty well. In a piece that appeared last month, it was noted that some of the world's healthiest coral reefs can be found in the Gulf of Mexico, about 100 miles off the Texas coast, sheltered in a deep, Cool habitat far from shore, the reefs in the Flower Garden Banks National Marine Sanctuary boast a stunning amount of coral coverage. Anyway, it's evidently a federally protected area and an impressive place to dive, and I'm glad to hear that it is doing well. And I must say, Mr. Millen is taken aback by this particular item. He's been associated with the diving community for many decades and has not heard about this uh, particular branch of coral reefs. Not once, since 1976 when I got uh, certified as a scuba diver. Well, according to this uh, article, the Flower Banks Garden is one of 15 National Marine Sanctuaries and two National Marine Monuments protected by the, the NOAA, noa Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. This is the only one in the Gulf of Mexico. The sanctuary is made up of 17 separate beds that cover 160 square miles When it was designated in 1992, the sanctuary had just two banks, but they've now, I guess, added 14 more. Good for them. This isn't an Onion article? No, it's the real deal. It's right off the the wires of the the AP. I'll have to check it out. All right. Something else this correspondent wants to check out is uh, a report we had... From California Report Magazine, dating back a month or two ago, about one of San Jose's last working orchards. It's been family-run since 1945. Apparently, it's the Costino family, which is surrounded by, of course, naturally urban development down in Silicon Valley. But they managed to hang on to their fruit trees and open land and have a functional farm that you can get tours of. I intend to do this. The J&P Costino family farm is something that I'm quite interested in. Having myself come from a farm family that was in the Bay Area when that's of course back when the Bay Area had farms. Now there's at least still one left here. It's a, it's not a large farm from what I can see from the article. There's only two acres that are left, but you know put a lot of trees on two acres. The article reports that there's more than 600 trees that are bearing 90 plus varieties of fruit, which includes apricots, plums, prunes, nectarines, apples, figs, and persimmons. Also grapevines, berry bushes, and quite a bit more. I want to see this place. And uh, after I do, uh, you'll be the first to get the report, dear listener. All right, we've got another item here that's not not exactly good news, but it's sort of, uh, depending on how you look at it, maybe good and bad news. I'm going to let you categorize it, dear listener. This piece comes from The Atlantic, and it, was t- it took a look at at the presidential candidates as they seem to be shaking up, which which at this point in time... Would appear to be in 2024, Biden versus Trump, Writing in the Atlantic, David Graham said President Biden has a good reason for a low key celebration of his 81st birthday, which took place recently. Roughly three quarters of the voters believe that Biden with his stiff gait, frequent gaffes and halting speech is too old for a second term. But, notes the author, the likely Republican challenger, the 77-year-old Donald Trump, is actually showing even more alarming, quote, signs of decrepitude, unquote. He notes that much of what Trump says these days is unintelligible, even for him. At rallies, he repeatedly mix up the Biden and Obama administrations, said he beat Obama in an election that everybody said couldn't be won. Hmm. He also said he beat Bush, leader who got us into the Middle East, apparently confusing his uh, primary race against Jeb with George W. In another speech, Trump praised North Korea's Kim Jong-un, but said he leads 1.4 billion people, mixing him up, obviously, with China's Xi Jinping. Notes David A. Graham, Trump's loss of mental acuity is blazingly obvious, so why doesn't it get more attention? His loud bluster makes him sound vigorous, and his nest of dyed hair and his heavy orange makeup makes him look less old than the pale Biden. But if old age is an issue for presidential contenders, it should be an issue for both men. We'd have to agree. And we'd also have to agree that it's pretty ridiculous that this could be our choice in this coming election year. I get a lot of mail from uh, political solicitations for various causes that are supposed to try and fix our system. And I sort of have to laugh at the ineffectiveness of many of these proposals. Now, it's pretty clear that our electoral college is a very bad system. It gives a huge 100-vote bias out of 532 small rural states. That's a conservative estimate, actually, depending on how you want to slice it. But it is a fact, as we reported in this program in the past, that uh, California, with its sizable population, which is the same population as the 27 smallest states in the nation, has two people representing us in the U.S. Senate, and those other states have 54. Because of the way the game is rigged, you don't get as much bang for your buck if you're a California voter trying to translate your opinion into the Electoral College. In fact, when you do the math on this, it turns out that about 193 people in Wyoming get the same clout, as about 715,000 people do in California, which which we don't think is a good thing. You know, and this little, uh, little datum got us to thinking how it all stacks up, so uh, we took a moment to go over to 270towin.com and started playing with uh, the numbers. And what we came up with was that California's 54 electoral votes go to select a president versus, well, the equal population of voters of the 27 smallest states, which it turns out allows them to send 134 electors to choose a president. So that's equal populations, California versus small states, 54 versus 134. So yes, based on the bias that's built into the electoral college system, a California voter has less to do with selecting the president than pretty much any other, which I don't think is reasonable. It seems to me that a citizen in uh, living in Sacramento, California, or San Diego... Should have just as much clout as does someone living in Pascagoula, Mississippi, or Fargo, North Dakota, etc. But that's just the way it is. And uh, these mailers come to me talking about how we're going we're to change all this by um, having states agree to vote, to take their electoral votes and, and apply those to who wins the national election, which, you know, uh, might work. I suppose if everybody went along with it, but one thing's pretty clear, all those red states that have more power than they're entitled to are not really interested in going down that road. I guess I should clarify the uh, the idea here is that if somebody wins the national popular vote, that state says, okay, we're going to put our electors to that person. Well, it just ain't going to happen, period, end of story. Dream. Yeah, dreams are nice. Pipe dreams are nice. But, uh, you know, we shouldn't get too wrapped up in, in some of these silly ideas. Now, we would be in favor of a constitutional amendment that would fix this and go to a direct vote. But, well, it doesn't seem like that's really got the ball rolling in any direction. So I think we're stuck, at least for the time being. And, you know, we really did dodge a bullet with that idea of uh, the, the independent state legislatures not quite getting the stamp of approval, some feared it might, from the Supreme Court. If that had gone through, this election really wouldn't matter. At least, people going to the polls <laughs> wouldn't really matter. I think it was Joseph Stalin that once pointed out that the, the person who votes has no power. The person that counts the votes, no, he's got power. I don't know, we're starting to get a little bit negative Mr. McMillan, let's, let's reverse that. Not if you like Stalin, we're not getting negative. Well, that's, that's true. And I would just say that I just, it just takes me back to a time when I was in college, traveling in Mexico with very little money, finding myself many years ago in the town of Cabo San Lucas, which at that time I believe had three hotels. And fate placed me in the company of some fellow Americans who it turned out were labor organizers from San Diego. We got to talking about their curious line of work, and they did let slip that they were dedicated Stalinists. Yes, not Marxists, not communists. They were that special breed known as Stalinists and were freely admitting of it. And being the kind of person I am, I couldn't resist throwing the name Trotsky out at them, which resulted in, a, oh, Trotsky, oh, yeah, he was a revision. Oh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Trotsky was a terrible person, blah, blah, blah. I think, although I don't remember this specifically, but I, I think they fell short of endorsing Trotsky's assassination by Stalin. But, you know, I can't be 100% sure. And because this is a, <laughs> a truly freeform show today, I'm, I'm not going to resist the temptation to take uh, the assassination of Trotsky and, and run with it. Now, as you students of history may or may not know, Leon Trotsky, who lost the battle for power in the wake of Lenin's death in the USSR to Joseph Stalin wound up having to flee the country and uh, live in exile in Mexico City, where Stalin sent assassins to rub him out. And I'm sorry, I just can't help but uh, take a dive into uh, a book titled The 50 Worst Films of All Time and How They Got That Way. This goes back to the 1970s. This book inspired the whole bad film genre, I guess you'd say, where you celebrate truly bad movies, things like "Planet 9 from Outer Space, but uh, in case you were unaware, there was a movie made in 1972 featuring no less than Richard Burton titled The Assassination of Trotsky. As you might well imagine from its inclusion in this volume, it's, it's not regarded as a good movie and is, is actually so bad it's something of a milestone. I'm not sure I can do uh, justice to, to this book uh, via radio because the pictures in it are just fall down funny. I'll try and describe them here. In the text, they mention that this film, which features Richard Burton playing Leon Trotsky, they said, it's hard to believe that anyone could compete with the great Burton in terms of a ludicrous performance. But in this film, Alain Delon nearly outdoes the master. He portrays Trotsky's maniacal assassin with so much twitching and eye-rolling that the audience in the screening we witnessed began to laugh and snicker every time Delon appeared on screen. That's a matter of historical record that the assassination of... The Bolshevik leader was carried out using an ice axe. In my favorite photo caption of this section, it shows the actor Alan Delon, described as dressed in his best assassin suit, and yes, he does have on a pork pie hat and dark shades, and is carrying over his shoulder an ice axe. Said the writers of this book, the assassin prepares to enter Trotsky's heavily guarded compound. His appearance fails to arouse suspicion. And he is given free entry. Sure, who wouldn't need an ice axe in Mexico City? Anyway, enough of that. Let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the week magazine, it was a good week recently for AI. Now, in this program, we've been very critical of AI, and we'll continue to do so in the future, no doubt. But I have to say, I'm impressed by this particular development being cited, which is the people at Frito Lay apparently have decided to employ AI-powered technology, and as a result, the Doritos subdivision has released Doritos Silent. This is an AI-powered app that will remove the sound of crunching potato chips from online voice chats, also Zoom, or any phone calls that use headphones. The lead developer of this breakthrough, someone named Dylan Flashbaugh, was quoted as saying, I think it's going to have an impact. Now, we do have to confess here at Radio Parallax, we were unaware of the burden that chomping down the potato chips was creating to various Zoom calls and voice chats. Apparently, we've spent way too much time focusing on things like global warming. But boy, people producing AI-powered apps like this, we, uh, we certainly salute you in our own way, which, which I think in this case may involve a one-fingered salute, but that's another story. You know, in fact, if we kind of back up into that, that poem by Emerson and talk about how if, to know that even one life has breathed easier because you've lived, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure that this, this, this applies. But then, as always, dear listener, You're the ultimate judge. But, you know, let's test this a bit. Now, see, if we'd had this AI-powered app, we'd have been able to scrub that right out of the broadcast. At any rate, moving right along, we would note that according to the week, it was a bad week last week for national security. After a group of self-described, quote, gay furry hackers, unquote, breached the system of the Idaho National Laboratory, which is one of the nation's largest nuclear labs, and they threatened to release employee data unless researchers start working on creating what's described as real-life mutant cat girls. Now, there aren't too many things that we're absolutely certain of on this program, but we are going to go on record as stating that we think the creating of real-life mutant cat girls will not be a step forward. And no, we have no idea what they mean by that phrase and probably think it's best if we just keep it that way. And uh, it was an ugly week, we'd have to say, a week or two ago, for privilege, with the news that the owner of the Indianapolis Colts NFL team, Jim Ursay, blamed his 2014 drunk driving arrest on racial and economic profiling said the 64-year-old rich white billionaire, I'm prejudiced against because I'm a rich white billionaire. If I'm just the average guy down the block, you're not pulling me in. Well, Mr. Ursa, I'd have to say that depends on how drunk you were driving. Because we're pretty sure if you're weaving across lines on the interstate, it doesn't really matter that you are the, the average guy down the block. No, you're, 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 you're going to the pokey. Now, we talked a bit about uh, AI and its potential to be an invention that's going to do mankind a great deal of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, I guess you just say one, one big giant good news, bad news joke. Yes, it's undeniable if your Zoom talk is being plagued by the sound of crunching potato chips. AI will provide solutions. But we're not quite up yet on this situation and what happened to Sam Altman and how he was fired and how he was brought back and all these machinations that are going on over at uh, OpenAI. Something's afoot over there. there. There was this rumor that we mentioned in this program a while back that there was some sort of major breakthrough in AI that's uh, causing waves and not being talked about openly. And we don't know the story on this yet, but we're going to try and find out. The Atlantic noted that for the past year, there's been a widening rift at open AI. On one side, there are the accelerationists, like Altman, who want to speed ahead with development and commercializing generative AI systems. And on the other hand, there's the doomers, including ex-members of the board, who worry about AI's potential to cause catastrophic harm. Everything from mass unemployment to the birth of an all-powerful artificial general intelligence that might snuff out humankind on a whim. Writing on CNN.com, Jill... Filippovich said, what we're talking about here is a field of research that's up there with the atomic bomb and its destructive potential. How can we take anything on trust? You know, I I just happened to watch a movie that was, uh, I guess, from the 1990s, Fat Man and Little Boy, stars um, Paul Newman as General Leslie Groves, the director of the Manhattan Project. Not a bad movie. It certainly delves at length in the relationship between General Groves and Robert Oppenheimer. And no, I've not seen the three-hour uh, recent movie about Oppenheimer, and neither has Mr. Merlin, but we're going to try and take that in. Because as the Paul Newman movie pointed out, you know, once the genie was out of the bottle, the, uh, the atomic program was taken away from General Groves and handed over to people like uh, Mad Dog Curtis LeMay of the United States Air Force, who... Developed a strategic air command to make sure we could drop atomic bombs all over the USSR whenever we wanted to. Oh, and China while we're at it. Anyway, Jill Filipovich said that uh, the chaos at OpenAI has highlighted the insanity of leaving AI's safe development to a handful of secretive feuding tech executives especially when many of these bigwigs, including Sam Altman, acutely understand just how quickly these machines could develop the capacity to annihilate us. And here's something I didn't know. Sam Altman's home is a prepper's paradise. He's loaded it with guns, antibiotics, water, batteries, and gas masks from the Israeli Defense Forces, according to the New Yorker. So yeah, it would seem that he's looking to the future with a a little bit of paranoia perhaps justifiable paranoia. And as is often the case, we need a little more data on this. We're going we're gonna to try and find it. And um, speaking of the Israeli defense forces, we're not going to talk too much about the ongoing uh, human tragedy that is the war in Gaza, which is still being portrayed in the press as a war between Israel and Hamas. Hamas. Well, the death toll now has climbed. Uh, last check, I think, passing fourteen thousand, headed for seventeen, something like that. In retaliation for the fourteen hundred lives lost when Hamas did attack, so it's 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 ten to one now and going up. And I think all I want to say is that and I'm pretty sure that uh, the fourteen thousand people dead were not all Hamas fighters. Okay, so at this point, it isn't really a war between Israel and Hamas so much as a war between Israel and Gaza. I'm also looking at um, a photograph that was taken in the wake of the attack. This is supposedly the caption on the photo describes it as vehicles destroyed by Hamas during the October 7th attack on Israel. They're collected in a field near the Israeli border. Well, to look at these, I don't know, 60 or so automobiles that are all just burned down to the frames, I just have to express some skepticism that that came about from a Hamas attack. This looks like the results of an airstrike. And in fact, Gaza does not have an air force. There's also some photos being circulated showing whole city blocks being blown apart from air attacks. And I must say, I find this uh, hard to think of in any other terms than war crimes at this point. We do think that Israel is likely to be about as lucky at selectively removing Hamas from the scene as the, the US was from selectively removing Islamic fundamentalists from Iraq it's going to be a long struggle with limited success and with no end in sight and um, we just pray they can find a way to end this thing sooner rather than later and speaking of trying to end a bad situation i stumbled upon a book in a uh, a book exchange in Marin County it was titled Hitler must die and it told the true stories of the numerous efforts that were made to rid the world of Adolf Hitler. I was not really fully aware of the degree to which a lot of people in Germany opposed Hitler and tried to kill him. Unfortunately, they did not succeed. Anyway, not to finish with it, when I, when I am, I'll, I'll, I think, try and talk a bit about it, because it's, it's an intriguing notion that um, there was a surprising amount of opposition to Hitler in, in Germany. And yet uh, they were shunted aside by a, um, a ruthless minority. Something we need to keep in mind as we look to the future. And closer to home and infinitely more frivolous, we have uh, the fact that, and Mr. Millen, you are not to play music to accompany this piece, okay? Oh. Here's the story. The soft rock alleged duo of Hall and Oates is at odds. Apparently, Daryl Hall, 77, and John Oates, 75, are locked in a legal battle that last week saw Hall secure a restraining order against his longtime bandmate and musical collaborator. Apparently, the specifics of the Nashville-based lawsuit are sealed, but Hall is reportedly trying to stop Oates from selling his share of a joint venture that may hold some publishing rights to the duo's back catalog. Hall has taken to disparaging Oates despite performing with him as recently as 2022. He said a week or two ago, he's, he's my business partner, not my creative partner. And here's something I did not know. Archie Comics is a huge hit in India. And apparently, if you're on Netflix, you'll be able to check out the fact that uh, uh, there's a new Bollywood-style musical about the teens of Riverdale. <laughs> the movie's Riverdale is set in a town in India circa 1964 where Archie and the rest of the gang are living the teenage dream before a hotel development threatens to destroy their favorite park. We're going to have to check this one out. I don't want to speak for him, but I know Mr. Merlin is keen to see the Indian portrayal of Jughead and Reggie. Yeah, do you imagine they change the names? I don't know. Maybe Rajiv for Reggie. and Jugdish? Maybe for Jughead. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have, to, we'll have to look into this. And speaking of movies, there's a book out now by a man named Matt Singer uh, titled Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. And, you know, it's a very sad thing to uh, realize we have got we nothing like Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert uh, reviewing movies for us because, boy, I think we need movie reviews more than ever right about now. I would really like to know how uh, everything, everywhere, all at once would have fared in the hands of Ebert and Siskel. Well, maybe AI can help us out with that. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because uh, <clears throat> it turns out that Google's AI chat box is now apparently going to watch and summarize YouTube videos for you, according to TechCrunch. Evidently, Bard already has the ability to analyze YouTube videos to help improve your search, but now you can ask directly about the content of a video and have it pull out answers or add information. Well, it's, it's almost as if you're talking to a human. Anyway, we're quite positive that none of that's going to duplicate uh, the, the, the on screen chemistry of, of Ebert and Siskel. Um, it was noted by the author of this book that something that was clear from the beginning of, of uh, at the movies was that the two guys really didn't like each other very much. Noted the reviewer that made for Compelling Television giving the show an irresistible frisson. And yeah, I had to look up what frisson means too. What does it mean? Well, for you non-francophones, it apparently means a sudden strong feeling of excitement or fear, a thrill. So it's nice to know a lot of people listening to this program no doubt experience a good deal of frisson. We hope so anyway. This might be a very good time to take a break. Let's, Let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax.